Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Look, I don't often like change either, especially the change I don't control. And I think most of us feel that way. And the work I've done is not always making change. It's not like I make the change. It's like I wrangle it. I understand it. And what I'm what I'm trying to do with the book is create a, hopefully a bit of a movement, a rallying cry in, in organizations for people who are ready for change. Hi there, I'm Lauren McGoodwin, founder and CEO of Career Contessa, and you're listening to season two of The Females, a podcast that deep dives into the world of women, work, and what it takes to build a successful and fulfilling career on your terms. This season will focus on disruption. From disrupting industries to old narratives and definitions of success, and even disrupting new ways of thinking. Today's interview is Beth Comstock, author and former vice chair and head of marketing and innovation at General Electric. Beth has made a name for herself as a change maker and someone who can convince the inconvincible to also adapt change through her almost 30 year corporate career. Beth's new book is called Imagine It Forward, Courage, Creativity, and the Power of Change. And that's exactly what we'll be covering on this episode. We'll hear about Beth's struggles with confidence and trouble advocating for herself at work. She even shares an embarrassing interaction with introducing herself to a CEO. We'll cover what permission slips are and why Beth gave them to herself often, and what to do if you're facing pushback at work with your ideas. This episode is perfect for anyone who's struggling to make their voice heard at work, stand out from the crowd, or looking to rewrite their story. Beth will also be getting vulnerable and sharing why her first year as an author has included lots of failures. And now, this is The Females. Okay, Beth, let's go back to the beginning. How did you come to be the vice chair and head of marketing and innovation at GE? I'm sure it's a long story, but if you can give us the shorter version. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it is a long story. I, I worked for about 30 years to get there. So uh, <laughs> almost about 25 to 30 years to get there. So I don't, I won't take you through each year, but um, basically I started my career out to be a journalist. I wanted to talk, tell stories about science. I was not very confident and um, quickly sort of found my way behind the scenes and got into promotion and media, worked at NBC and a few other media companies from uh, working behind the scenes in promotion and communications. And then NBC was owned by GE, went to work at GE and uh, the promotion platform I had made way for marketing 
and I took very seriously my marketing title. To me, it was about living in the market, understanding what was important to customers. And when you live in the market, you see trends and patterns. And uh, it ended up being a great gateway to innovate from the market back. And from there, I really accelerated across the company as somebody who pushed for new innovation, really a champion of what's new and next, and ended up creating and overseeing our business innovation unit, uh, which led to me becoming vice chair. So that's my career. Along the way, I was married twice, and I have uh, still married to my second husband and have two great daughters. Well, I have to thank you also because I know you um, were part of the early development of Hulu and my first big career move or the, the job I really loved was at Hulu. So thank you. Oh, for great. Helping Good. Develop what, were you, my career. what were you doing there? Um, I was a recruiter there and I was back... I worked there back in the days when people would say, who, what, what, what is this called? Is it, is it Netflix? And you know, you had to describe to them and you're like, you're going to watch the TV, but on your computer. So it was a really exciting time to be working there. So it's, uh, was. it was a very exciting time. Good for you. Yeah. So you worked at GE for nearly three decades, which in today, like, I don't know anyone who's done anything for more than like four or five years. No. <laughs> and, yeah, and a lot it, of that will be rare. That will be something you will not be seeing much of in the future. I feel confident of that. I do too. And I, I, I mean, when I say like they've been doing things for four to five years, that includes college, <laughs> you know, so, yeah, yeah. so they're probably working for even less years at companies. I'm really curious, how were you able to stay engaged yet proactively grow in your career during all those years? And, and what, important professional and personal lessons did you learn along the way? Because I do think whether you're working somewhere for decades or for a few years, just staying engaged and growing within that is always sort of a bit of a challenge for everyone. Yeah. And um, I think that my experience is unique just because there are so many new opportunities going forward. But it, you know, for the time I grew my career, it was not that unusual. But also GE was a different kind of company. I came into it via NBC which was media, and I was able to work across multiple industries, healthcare, energy, transportation. So because the business model of the company at the time was multi-industry, it allowed me to work in very different uh, situations and connect dots in different ways. And I think that business model is probably, you know, certainly not something you're going to see in the near near future. But out of that, I think comes in uh, something I learned that Regardless of where you are, when you have to craft your job to expand to things you want it to be, to get the the experiences you want it to be. So everyone joins a job because there's a set of responsibilities you're hired to do. The company needs certain outcomes. They need certain things happening. But I learned through my experience that you can also craft your job uh, and to go after things you want more of. Take, for example, I mentioned earlier, I, I went into marketing. I was GE's first chief marketing officer in two decades. No one knew what marketing was in my company. It was this wonderful opportunity to reinvent marketing because no one really had expectations. They thought it was advertising, yet advertising was just a little piece of what we did. As I said, it was for us a platform to be about innovation. So we had to get out and show we could make it uh, about innovation from finding trends in the market back, not just making great technology. So it was a way to craft that that opportunity and turn it into something new and different. So I think you can do that no matter where you are. Let's say, you know, you're going in uh, as a as an accountant. Um, I think there are probably ways you can craft the role um, to, to be about different things. Perhaps you're going to be the one that helps them figure out capital. How do you allocate capital for new businesses? So I think you can match your interests to the 
to the expertise you have and the role that the company wants you to do. And um, I think the other thing I'd say is I do believe that the way that jobs are being defined in the future, in the now in the future, is much more professional fluidity. You're going to be able to take on more project assignments. You're probably only going to work for companies three to five years. You'll bring teams together to, to go after a mission, a project, a specific objective, mission accomplished. You will have expertise. Maybe you're going to go do another mission at another company. You don't necessarily have to stay at that company to continue to build your career. I think I'd be looking for those kind of opportunities. Right. And I think because you were part of a large company, GE, you were essentially creating that in-house for yourself, which, uh, exactly. you know, now, like you're saying, it's like there's more there's more people just doing the same thing, but within different companies and kind of hopping around to different companies. I think that it's really important, too, that women especially advocate for the projects they want. When you went to GE and you said, hey, you guys, we don't have a CMO. I want to be the CMO. Was that, you know, you were proactive about it. You went to them. You created this presentation. I mean, how how long does the process actually actually work? Because I feel like we always talk about advocate for yourself, but it's like, okay, what's the practical advice? Like how long are you pitching them and, and what does it take? Yeah. Well, I am um, along the way in my career, I, I'm like, I'm your classic good girl. I always got good grades. I always did what I was supposed to. I didn't break the rules, but I had to become a bit of a rebel and a rule breaker, which is out of my comfort zone to do exactly what you're saying. So Um, In some ways, the marketing role, I was already in a a piece of that job doing communications and advertising, and I brought a new sense of creativity. I brought a strategic framework to it. I brought an outside-in perspective. I was constantly bringing in ideas and, and people from the outside to have us do new ways of working. I was able to distinguish myself as somebody who was approaching these issues differently. And so I was advocating for a new kind of marketing, yet at the same time, the marketing job was unclear. And I think Jeff Immelt saw in me somebody who was taking risks and trying things differently and said, I think we need marketing. I don't exactly know what I'm asking for, but I think she's the kind of person who can help figure it out. So one kind of led to the other and he gave me that space to figure it out. So I think that became somewhat how I navigated my career as kind of a figure it out person. So in some ways you're packaging what you do, right? I had to kind of package myself as this outside in, having an outside in perspective. I didn't come from within the GE culture. So that outside in perspective helped me navigate differently and it became kind of my strength. So some of those I'd say, use your capabilities and just package them and say, here's how I'm going to take those skills I have and apply it to a new challenge you need you need solved. That might be one way to think about approaching it. Yeah, I like that too because it's essentially saying you got to think outside the box. You know, careers don't fit in a box anymore and neither does the way you advocate or, you know, recommend yourself for a project, which is um, really smart. And the other thing, Lauren, to what you're saying, I think what I saw arise in me that surprised myself, I mentioned that kind of rebellious nature. I think it's maybe another way to think about it is a bit of a resilience, a persistence. So quite often in my early days of marketing, I mean, I said, we said, let's create marketing as innovation. People are like, what are you talking about? Well, one, we had to, I had to keep going back. I had to try different ways in this kind of notion of no is not yet. Like, okay, the first time I wasn't successful. Let me try another way to make, make this argument. Let me try another way to show you an example. And often the easiest way was to create some real examples. Let me show you a proof point. The first thing we created, we called them imagination breakthroughs, but it was a it was a kind of a small group of ideas that we were seeding from marketing. 
with just a small amount of funding. So I could show people it was more, I couldn't, you know, once sometimes you can't just tell people you right. have to show them. Right. So your persistence has to be keep trying different things until you break through. So people see what you're talking about. Right. I also think that you start to become known as someone who, I don't want to say that you don't take no for an answer, but you're persistent. And I also think people really love to work with people who don't want to give up. They want to keep trying to problem solve. And as you said, they're resilient. And that's a great quality to have in today's workplace. And Lauren, that word you're using, I think is really that phrase problem solve. That's what it is. And you're listening along the way. It's not like I'm right. And this is the way to do it. You're like, here's an opportunity. I think we can get there. You're kind of building a movement. You're building, um, you're building enthusiasm. But you're right that persistence is an optimism. There's a vision as part of that. There's a oh my gosh, I remember people saying to me, "You just don't give up, do you?" <laughs> and I'm not sure they always meant it so positively, but it was like, "No, I don't." Right. Um, and they'd have to after a while go, "Well, if you're so committed to this, let me understand why." Right. And if you keep working and you're building momentum and really you're building a movement of people who also start to see that because it's not you yourself. And so I think that is part of that art of trying to make change and change your role and impact is you've got other people to see, have to see it too. Right. Well, speaking of problem solver, I think it's a great segue to talk about your book, which is called Imagine It Forward. And it focuses on how each of us can become a change maker in disrupt imagination. And I've got a few questions related to this, but I just wanted to first say congratulations on your book. It's really, really good. Thank you. Thanks for reading it. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I actually have it on an audiobook and a physical book. <laughs> and so I have like underlying <laughs> parts in the book. Yeah. So, but I like the audio because I, I commute so much, though. It makes, it makes the reading part of it actually a little faster. So, okay. A couple of questions related to this. First, how do you define a change maker and why should we all strive to be change makers? And I I would say that especially to people who are very risk adverse, they don't like change. Like why should they still strive for that? Yeah. I love that question because of a couple of things. One, words often fail us at some of these moments and change maker, I I grabbed the word because it's, it's action, but look, I don't often like change either, especially the change I don't control. And I think most of us feel that way. And the work I've done is not always making change. It's not like I make the change. It's like I wrangle it. I understand it. And what I'm what I'm trying to do with the book is create a, hopefully a bit of a movement, a rallying cry in, in organizations for people who are ready for change, who are ready to kind of see it early and use the power of it and not be blindsided, disrupted, or killed by it in business. And so I do think you have to make room for change. That's really, to me, the twist of the change maker is you're making room for change. And um, it's, it's, it's some of what I put out in the book. It, it is this ability to create, to me, imagination is this ability to solve problems in new ways because we have new sets of problems, the pace of change, the digitization, the globalization, all the challenges we see in the world. Think of something like climate change or just new ways of leading in a digital era. Some of what worked in the past is going to help you, but you can't, not everything's going to solve these new problems. So we need imagination. We need people who are understanding the change early, um, who are out in the world discovering making connections, seeing patterns, who are experimenting in new methods. That means you have to fail. Mm -hmm. So all of that comes with the, the quote, change making, which again is making room for change. 
Mm-hmm. And and confronting today's accelerating change really requires what you're saying, forward thinking and, and detaching from fear, which again, as you said, like these words are great, but specifically, how can we do that? I mean, the practical advice of you're in a workplace, you you want to, you know, be that forward thinker, but you're afraid, you know, the, the business has never done it like this before, or you're recommending something that definitely could fail and you're asking for, you know, a budget of hundreds of thousands of dollars to try it. I mean, how do you, what's the practical advice on how you can do that? Before I answer that, can I ask you, you speak so passionately about that. I feel like maybe you've had that experience. <laughs> well, I definitely, I mean, <laughs> yes, as an entrepreneur, you're always taking a risk and you're always crossing your fingers and hoping that it works. And I, I mean, I, one of the benefits of being at a big company, I always actually say this is like, at least you have the resources to, you know, go after something and try it with, you know, a budget, additional people on your team. As an entrepreneur, I think everything we do is super scrappy. And while it's fantastic, there are times where I'm like, oh, if we just had, you know, $10,000, we could try out this thing and do it. And, you know, being an entrepreneur, I think creates a whole different type of forward thinking, because now you have to be forward thinking with a very, very few resources, including money. So, I mean, there's pros and cons to both. I, when I worked at Hulu, I got to um, come up with strategies and be like, I think we should go to this school and recruit this tech talent because no one else is going there. But it's going to be really expensive to send six people there for a week to recruit and we might not get a single offer. You know, and that was challenging, but it was a little different because Hulu was an environment where they, they wanted people to take risks and, and try new things and fail fast. So I think it kind of depends on the culture you're in too. Yeah. And I think to your point, the fear is that neither path is easy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Part of what I'm trying to agitate for in more companies with writing the book and my experience is just more entrepreneurism wherever you are, whether Mm -hmm. you're in a big company, a small company, you work in a hospital, a school, you drive a bus. If you see a better way, you have to go after it. And that requires risk. And the fear is what, what we first, I think it's there is fear. Like that's the first step is to say I'm afraid, and to realize that a lot of the bad behavior at work is because we all bring our fears there. You fear that you you fear that you see something, but you're not even sure how to articulate it. Right. You fear that people aren't going to understand you. You fear what if I'm wrong? Sometimes you fear you're going to lose your job. I fear I don't have enough money. I fear the boss won't let me. We all have those. Uh, fears, and sometimes they manifest as alibis. Right? Mm-hmm. They become excuses. I can't do that. And really, sometimes you can't, like your boss says, no, you can't do that. That's valid. But is there a different way around it? Is there a different way? And what you're talking about uh, in the Hulu days, and and especially now with Career Contessa, is as an entrepreneur, you don't have that $10,000. That is a constraint that you've had to be figure out how to work around. And what I hope we can unlock in more organizations is that ability to get over that and say that fear is a constraint, and let me find a way around that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes you just, sometimes you get to the point where maybe you work in a team, work for a manager or a company that just isn't going to take risks. And so you have to decide, do I need to go work for another company? Do I want to start something myself, work for a smaller company? Or do I need to find a different outlet for that kind of ability to make things better that I feel innately part of my creativity. And, you know, maybe it's a side project, maybe it's a volunteer work. So I do think innately in all of us, in most of us is this sense of, if you see a better way, you want to do it. And I think that is about owning that fear and giving yourself permission to take those small, 
risks. It's necessary risk. We're not talking like crazy, like I'm going to bet the whole, my whole life on it. I'm going <laughs> right. to bet my whole career on this risk. Those, some people are good at that, but most of us aren't. Right. It's that one step forward. I'm going to just pitch that idea. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just ask if we could have that partnership. I'm going to just put it, I'm just going to go meet this one person. I'm just going to cold call and see what they say. Those are the first steps that often people don't take because they already are thinking ahead, like, I'm going to lose my job if I do that. Right. And most of those are not real fears. Right. I really like what you said about your fears can become your alibis. It's I've seen that so much. I mean, we work with a lot of people who are trying to find new jobs or transition careers. And so then it becomes, well, this is impossible. No one's going yeah, to exactly. you know, look at my resume. How would I be successful there? And, and clearly there are plenty of stories of success. But you also talked about like, well, create evidence, create evidence of times where you've been able to been, be successful and then to push past that fear. So all of that's great advice. I'm kind of curious too. I mean, I don't know if this is is something you encountered at GE a lot, but there's research that shows that women in the workplace actually just overall face even more pushback at work. You know, maybe they're not included on a project. Maybe when they advocate for something, it's, you know, the boss doesn't like it for whatever reason. There is gender stereotyping, unconscious bias. Did you face any of that at GE and and how did you overcome it? And Oh, sure. Yeah. And the especially when I started out and as I progressed my career, there were a lot more women I worked with, especially in the early, my early to mid career times. There were, I I intentionally picked to go from a media company to a more industrial corporate. There weren't as many women in media either, but it was more technical focused. And so historically there had been less women. So I felt that acutely. Mm -hmm. Um, And it does add extra pressure because what's happening is it's just your difference. It's, and I, I think innovation entrepreneurship is about taking a risk on a different perspective, a different idea, and you're representing difference. And so that is like, well, no, we don't, your style is different. Your approach is different. Maybe your voice sounds different. Perhaps your confidence level, as mine often was, especially in the early part of my career, I was incredibly, I was, I was shy, but I was also, I lacked confidence. And so that need to you know, for me, it was about just getting, being curious and getting excited about the idea or the potential is how I overcame that. But yeah, you have to fight harder. If you're a quiet person, which I was, it meant there were many times I'd leave meetings and I was so angry at not being given an opportunity to speak, but also angry at myself for not taking one or making one. And so I, that back to that permission, I would kind of challenge myself, say, you had an idea. You know, if I heard five guys say an idea that wasn't as good as mine and I didn't, well, whose fault was that in the end if I didn't speak up? Um, And so I sort of challenged myself, okay, next time, you know, you have a good idea, go in there and put your idea out. I put all my energy into it. I'd be like, oh my God, I'd be in my head and (laughs) so panicked. But usually, you know, and oftentimes the first time you say it, you're not heard. Right. Or people are like, they don't know. They're like, have to think about it. And you lose your confidence again. Cause no one says like, wow, that's a great idea. And you're like, see, I shouldn't have said yeah. <laughs> it. But sometimes people just need to hear some time to think, think about it. So then the next time you'd have to go back and go like that idea. I said last time, let me give you more thoughts about how we could make that happen. So you have to keep pushing that forward. And it's, so it's an ongoing process. Um, but yeah, I, I in some ways I felt uh, because I was a woman, because I was more in the creative and, and no one knew what to make of marketing at GE, in some weird way, I, I was able to kind of own that differently. And I, I was maybe able to just kind of own that creativity and difference 
because it was like either people didn't care or they didn't even know what it was. So, you know, it's kind of like I always say, to, I advise people in their career, take a job no one wants or the few people are focused on because they don't know what to expect anyway. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, as I look back, I think I owned that difference a little bit more. And maybe, maybe that helped me navigate it differently. Right. I, I like the challenge of, okay, I'm going into this meeting and I'm, you, you know, you're challenging yourself to speak up at least once. I, one of the challenges I've given myself recently is after I say my idea or, you know, I name my price in a proposal is to stop talking. Cause I, I love that, you know, you said, you know, if no one reacts, like I get super uncomfortable with the crickets, you know, if no one responds and they don't say anything, I'm like, Oh my God, this was terrible. Everyone hates it. They're thinking about how they can tell me no in a really nice way. You know, like you said, your mind jumps to these really negative places. And so that's my challenge is like, say, what you want and then stop talking and put the ball in their court. But you're right. It's, it's very hard. And I, I I mean, hopefully this gets easier over time. It sounds like you got better and better with this over time, which I guess is the beauty of how all this stuff works. (laughs) Well, it is, you are building capability. And yeah, to that point, I, you know, I said, I gave myself challenges. It started with this notion of permission. And I found it with some of the people I worked with that they just needed to give themselves permission, but they needed some symbolism. So one of the things I ended up developing, you know, as I started working with teams was I came up with these permission slips that I would give to people. And I'd say, I got your back, but somehow I feel like that's not enough. You got to give yourself permission to get over those alibis and fears. And I literally kept a stack of them on my desk. And I would say, here, I want you to fill this in. I give, I, Lauren, give myself permission, you know, and you got to fill it in. You're going to give yourself permission to do one of those small acts. And, and there's something about that symbolism of just writing it down and saying like, I'm making this and I'm now accountable for it that I I found really helpful. And I've, I've done that for myself. I really like that. I also wonder if, you know, being a female leader and recognizing that this is a challenge for people, you were able to come up with that creative, you know, solution. I don't have any science to back this up or research to prove, but like, I do think women uh, as leaders, especially are more in tune with, okay, this person is really trying to speak up more. And it seems like they're really fearful of doing that. How can I not just have their back, but maybe do something to help them? And I'm sure you've never like said, oh, I'm doing this because I'm a woman, but I do think sometimes that's a characteristic of female leaders that exist a little bit more. I think I, I agree with that. I, I My experience is certainly in my style and the women I've worked with. I do think there's something to a bit more, you know, having more empathy and even intuition mm-hmm. as something that, um, that we bring to that, that we've, we've honed because we have, we've had to, we've had to figure right. out other ways in to understand the situation. We haven't been sitting there in the middle from the beginning. So we've had to use other skills to kind of intuit and pull out what's happening. And, um, I do think that serves us well and lead helps us to lead differently. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. One of the chapters I loved in your book is rewriting your story. And there's a lot of great examples um, and advice on storytelling, like the the most simple story wins, or that you can unlock your strategy through the power of story. The ability to harness a story is what differentiates a good leader from a great one. I think that's all very spot on. I think we live in a world where like, it's all about the storytelling. If you tell them a great story, they're going to remember it. If you you know, just shout your message loud, like really like scream it loud in their face. They're still not going to get it. Um, so I want to expand on that a bit. What does it take to be a great leader in today's fast moving environment? And, and really how do, how can you, how can you make storytelling kind of part of your style? Yeah. The more I, the more I worked, the more I appreciated 
the ability of the, the capability of communications as a core leadership as, uh, attribute. Um, and think about it when you when you conjure up a great leader in your head. Uh, it could be the leader of your Girl Scout troop when you were a kid. It could be the leader of your company or a president. I mean, leaders are able to communicate a vision and to do it over and over again in a, in a, in a way that you want to you follow them. You want to be part of that. And I think we think communication is just what we do at the end, right? It's like the fancy wallpaper. Or, you know, I have a product, now get me a story. To me, and I, it's, it, was really a, it really came out to me as I was sort of synthesizing the book. And to me, story is the thread that I've taken through my career. And I think story is everything. It's the glue that binds us. Think about it. It's, what, it's how your grandmother told you what your family was like before you were even born. It's mm-hmm. the way we talk about culture. And in business, we think it's the soft stuff. We want to hit everybody over the head with the numbers, with the logic. Yet I know it. I've seen it in a career that, to what you said, I mean, the better your story, the better you're able to sell something. To me, to, to tell is to sell. If you can tell a story, you can sell something. And I see too many people who try to just hit you up with the logic. And so what is a good story? To me, strategy is a good story. And that's a way to test if your strategy is sound. Can you tell a good story? What is a good story? A story is, is it basically is, uh, tells you where you're going in the world. So there's a vision. I'm going here. It's aspirational. You're not there yet. It, uh, it's, it's dramatic. There's ups and downs. You know, will you get there or not? It's based on truth. You know, you have to have some core capability or strength or ability to believe you're going to do that. And it's a lot about where you came from, what you value, who you are. It's a reason to believe you're going to be able to do that. And so I think those things need to come together. A few practical tips. I love to challenge people. You want to freak people out, but go like <laughs> when you meet them, hey, hey, Lauren, what's your story? Yeah. What? what? <laughs> um, you know, but I, I love in the age of social media, most of us have to ha- have to, you know, have to be able to tell our story out there. So that's right. a good challenge. Like, what's your story? Can you do it in 140 characters? Or now Twitter's expanded to what, 230? Right. <laughs> Can you tell your story in 230 characters? That's a, that's a real challenge. That ability, you know, the old elevator pitch, right. um, you know, you get on the elevator with your customer or your boss, you're going from whatever floor to whatever, what's your story? Right. I think that's a great way to exercise it. Do it with your, think about your customers. The other trick I learned from um, my time in communications is I learned how to write a press release. And a press release is nothing more than a news story um, that really encapsulates a strategy and it's a pitch you're making to the world. It's like, here's my headline. Here's the news. Here's the supporting material. And I often, in fact, I kind of outlined it in the book, but I like to challenge people to kind of write a press release when they're putting together a, 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 new, a new strategy or a new business idea. Does it have a fundamental story? Will anyone care? Right. And will it hold together? So I think there are some tactics that, and, that anyone and everyone must use story because it's about a vision for the future. It's about a relatability. It says you're human, right? right? It says that I have emotion. And that's what I believe we need to make room for. And I know it works. A good story sells. Right. And as it relates to leaders, I think people follow great leaders. People, you know, will jump from company to company with that leader. They, you know, good leadership, I think, is something where it is probably more of an art than a science and being able to tell your story. And that is really, really motivating to people. And I don't know, you know, if we just talk more about it, like bad leaders or bad bosses today, but I do think that's something that we're really lacking is a lot of really good leaders or how to be a really good leader, even though I think people have the best intentions. 
emotions. I just think it's, you know, as you said, like honing your story, it's a skill and being simple with it. But it's certainly that that vision is what gets people to follow you and be engaged at work and do good yeah, work. Yeah, and it also is how you package yourself, right? I mean, I shared a story in the book of how kind of earlier in my career, I sat and waited for a job to come to me and I got so frustrated the job was open. They didn't call me. And finally I got so, fr- you know, one of those classic career mistakes, like you wait to be called, even right. though I thought it had my name on it. And I finally got up my nerve and kind of tiptoed into the HR leader's office. And he goes, oh yeah, we thought of you, but, um, but we thought as a young mother, you wouldn't be able to travel and this job requires travel. And, and there were a lot of things I learned in that moment, but one of them was, well, wait a minute. I, the boss of me, I know what my story is. You, you can't make up my story. Yeah. <laughs> I can travel. How, how, you, how can you say that I can't? That's my issue, not yours. But I hadn't crafted that story for them. Right. I hadn't filled in that critical gap. And I think that often happens. We kind of feel like, oh, if I'm, if I'm self-promoting, I, it's not going to look good. You got to get that, like, you got to have your story. Right. It's not like you're trying to like self-promote. It's package yourself. Here's mm-hmm. my story. Here's how I want you to know what's important to me. Here's how I'm seeing myself and my vision for the world. And that's how you get championship. And championship are people who know how to tell your story and say, hey, Lauren's really amazing. Do you know what Lauren did? Do you know what she's done with Career Contessa? That's what you want people to be able to tell your story when you're not around. Exactly. Exactly. Hey there, let's take a quick break from today's show so I can tell you about Rothy's shoes, the most comfortable flat you can wear all day for any occasion. Seriously, Rothy's shoes do not require any breaking in time so you can immediately enjoy them. I know this because I wear my Rothy's most days of the week, including the weekends. I have a pair of flats in black solid that are great for work since they are really easy to dress up or down, but still move around your day quickly. And on the weekends, I love to switch to my camo gray sneakers and some yoga pants. It's a more stylish way to run errands in comfort, and you can even meet up with a friend and go for a power walk or even to brunch all within your sneakers. Rothy's also has numerous color and pattern selections. The lineup is always being updated. Next on my list is the point style and red print. You'll want to check these shoes out and share the love with all your work wives. And for your royally obsessed bestie, you can even let her know that Meghan Markle slipped on a pair of Rothy's during a recent trip to Australia. I promise I did not make that up. Not only do Rothy's look good, they're good for the environment. They are made from plastic water bottles, and so far Rothy's has almost reached 20 million bottles recycled. You can also machine wash your shoes and help save your wallet. Bottom line, I love my Rothy's, and I know you will too. Right now, Rothy's has an amazing deal for you listeners. Use code FEMALS, F-E-M-A-I-L-S, to get free shipping with no minimum. Go to rothys.com and enter FEMALS to get your new favorite flats and free shipping. It's a no-brainer. Shoes that are comfortable, stylish, and sustainable with free shipping? Yep, that deal was made for you. All right, now let's get back to the show. Well, I want to move into confidence because you've mentioned uh, a few times that it was something that you struggled with early on in your career and that you still struggle with confidence at times. I definitely can relate to that feeling and it's it definitely comes in waves. Some days I'm on top of the world and other days it's like, oh, the self-doubt is definitely creeping in. How do you tackle insecurities and self-doubt? Are there any mantras or routines, behaviors, books, anything you've used to really help you work through that? So I, um, I, I think one is just 
you got to, you got to get out of your head. I think that would be my first thing that I, I just, because I'm shy and reserved and introverted, I just second guessed everything. And especially the fellow introverts who are listening, I think can relate to this. You get inside your own head and you just imagine things that aren't, aren't even real. So because I was <laughs> yeah. reserved, I would, I would hold back in a, in a, let's say a networking event. I would hold back and the confidence was, oh, there's Lauren. Oh my gosh. Like I want to go talk to her, but she doesn't, what would she want to say to me? Right. That's the confidence thing. The reserved shyness would be like, oh, I feel so awkward going over and saying hi to her. And then when I finally walk over, if I finally give myself that challenge, okay, I'm going to go walk over and I'm going to meet Lauren. And then it, when I come to see you in my head, I'm thinking, oh, she's looking at me. She's like, why is she wearing that shirt? <laughs> Can't believe her hair looks like that today. And you're probably going, oh, there's Beth. She's wondering, like, why am I wearing this, this, these earrings or whatever, right? We're, we're both in our heads and we're not listening to what each other has to say. And um, so I had to overcome a lot of that just in my own head. And, and so the way I tried to overcome it was give myself those challenges, like just get out there and do it. It didn't mean I was confident, but I gave myself a little bit of courage to just kind of get in there mm-hmm. and then to be okay if it was awkward. Okay, that was awkward, but at least I did it. I, was, I tell a story about how I had to, I worked for Ted Turner and I kind of had to go and make sure he did. I worked for him for a year and he didn't know my name and I was at CNN and, and I, I went and waited for him outside the men's room and. And, you know, he was kind of like, why are you here? And he never knew my name, but I was so proud of myself for introducing myself, even though it was incredibly awkward <laughs> yeah. at the moment. But it's that kind of thing. So you're not, maybe not, you're, you're building confidence by giving yourself these little doses of courage. And so I think they're two different things. The other thing is just experience, mm-hmm. right? Trying things, trying things, trying things in a smaller scale. Like don't pitch your idea to your board, Maybe pitch your idea first to you, the person who sits next to you. Right. Pitch your idea to your cousin, your husband, your sister, uh, before you take it to an investor. And so you're trying these things smaller. You're getting feedback from people you trust. That builds confidence. And then I think there's just the, the mind games you play that you just say, I got this. Right. I know this. Is that fear real? I read an article recently. I, I don't know if you follow Kara Swisher, who's who's mm-hmm. the founder of Recode and she did an article recently and she was said a boss had once told her she was overconfident and she was like, no, I'm not. I'm fabulous. I, love, <laughs> I love that. that. <laughs> I was like, I never did that. I, I might've thought I was fabulous, but maybe even too afraid. And I couldn't summon it at that moment. So I think if I could go back in time, I would have had those moments. Like, remember there's a part of that, like I'm fabulous here. Right. Like I can do this. I got this. And that's what you're trying to do. I'm not sure I believe the fake it till you make it. I think it's you're you're shifting the conversation in your head. Mm -hmm. So you're summoning that part of you that is that, Mm -hmm. right? And you're saying like, I got this. I can do this. So it's it's really, to me, kind of a pep talk that you're doing in your head, not the talk in your head of like, oh, this is so awkward. She's, you you, you don't know. Just be in your head and, and, and give yourself that that boost. Right. I, I completely agree. It starts with, it always starts in the head. I feel like every interview I've done for the podcast, for the site, it's like the internal and what you tell yourself, it, it manifests so many other places. So I, 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 I love like, tell yourself you're fabulous. We had a woman we interviewed and she said, before she goes into a big meeting, she looks at herself in the mirror and she says, you are a badass and anyone would be lucky to be in the room with you. And she says it like three or four times. Like she's got this, you know, routine, this uh, ritual she does. And then she goes in and, 
you know, to each their own. Maybe somebody's like, I could never do that, but it works. And I do think as, as what you're saying, it's like, it, it sets the foundation for being able to introduce yourself. And now you've had that confidence win and now you want to do more of those. So exactly. Um, and I, I, to me, it was not your fabulous. It was like, I can do this. Right. Like, I can do just this one thing. And the other, just, you made me think one other thing I sometimes do too, is Go back to a situation. I found this in change too. It's both, you know, a, 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 maybe there was a difficulty you had to overcome or a really traumatic change you had to overcome. And like you did that, you got through it. But go back and go, like, I did this before. I can do this again. I pitched that idea that time and it really worked. Or I pitched that idea and it didn't work so well, but I figured out why it didn't work and now I can do it now. Mm-hmm. Right. So remind yourself that you're building this is this is an ongoing process and you've actually done this before in some context that gives you confidence you can do it again. Mm -hmm. So I want to switch into a different type of change, more of a a personal change that you experience and you talk about in the book, which is being a single working mother. You're very focused on your career. And in the book, you write about your decision to really uproot your life in Washington, D.C. to start a new career chapter in New York with a baby on your own, (laughs) which I mean, I like, again, I don't even have kids. And just the thought of that uprooting is is overwhelming. How did you develop that courageous inner voice? Was it because you did? done other gutsy things before. So you were like, I can just do this. I mean, and, and then of course, like, I don't want to say managing it, but like, how did you do all that? Yeah. And to me, I mean, I, I, I felt I had to share it. My book, I, I try to be very, uh, document my very personal journey as I'm talking about change in an organization. Cause I think it's important that you understand you have to change in order to help your organization change. So to me, that was one of the biggest change moments I had to face into. It was, it was in my mid twenties, I had, I was married and I had a a young daughter and yet I felt I was living this life that I didn't, wasn't the life I had planned for me at that stage. It wasn't the future. I didn't see the future unfolding the way I I had imagined it. And I was living someone else's story. Mm -hmm. I looked successful. I had this great uh, husband and daughter and I, I just started, my career had just started. And by everyone's account, that was like a great story, but it wasn't my story. It wasn't the story I wanted. And I just had to kind of, it was, just this, this voice I couldn't ignore anymore. And it said, this isn't what you signed up for. And I had to take kind of that, for me, it was incredible act of saying, I can't do this. I can't be this Mm -hmm. and, um, get a divorce, say, I want to move. Like my only ambition was I just started working at NBC. I wanted to be in media and like as ambitious as I could be was to see going to New York. I didn't know anybody there. I had a few friends and just kind of took off and made it happen. And I guess as I, I shared it because I had no choice but to make it work. I didn't have a blueprint. It's not like somebody said, here's the five steps you're going to do to make this change work. I was risking my daughter, you know, taking her away from her, her father. It was a lot of things I was risking, but I had sort of gotten to that point of kind of following everybody else's story mm-hmm. that at that point I had no choice but to make my own story happen. And I had to make it work. So it's really just that. I just did it and just said, I got to make it work. Right. And, um, I like those moments because uh, again, you, you can't, somebody's not going to, no one else can do that for you. You have to do it. And, you know, my mother wasn't happy that I did that of my daughters. I would say, are you sure you want to do that? But only I could answer that for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So you had mentioned that, you know, by, all accounts, you were successful, and but you didn't. It wasn't your story. I'm curious how that experience, and then of course your your decade long career at GE. How do you now define success? 
Yeah, I um, I, I mean, I, I think it is much more being able to listen to that voice. But I've struggled with. I mean, a lot of a lot of we, we I know I do still look for validation from other people. I want the gold star from somebody telling me I did a great job. You know, as I put this book out, yeah. you, know, you, start to, you start to go, how, do I have enough Amazon gold stars? And right. Am I, do I have enough likes on this tweet or whatever? So I, I still, I still adhere to some of that. And I, I don't like that about myself, but I do. And so you, it's a continual struggle to say like, what did I want to do? Have I listened to that voice? And I document in the book, just taking jobs sometimes that people thought from the outside were dumb jobs. Like I took a job at NBC news a second time and it was one of the most formative jobs in my life. I will be forever grateful for that opportunity. It unlocked capabilities in me. I didn't know I had, and everyone told me that was a bad job to take, but my gut said, I didn't know why I couldn't articulate it. My gut said, take it. Right. You, you want to do this. And so that's really those moments. And sometimes I think when life gets too busy, career life, we think we don't have a moment to breathe. You got to find a way to listen to that voice. I, I Like to me, as I wrote the book, I started to adapt a new practice of getting up every morning. The, that sort of, it was, I think it's Julia Cameron, the artist way, who like get up every morning and do your morning pages, three pages every morning to just kind of download what you're feeling, thinking. I found that very helpful. Walking in nature, just different things to make sure you're you're listening. Are do you really want to do that? Or do you, you doing it because you think you should do that? And, and sometimes you have to do it because you should, but make sure you hear that voice. And I've tried to carve out space for that. Yeah. You can't hear your intuition if you're so busy being loud with other things. So I think that's, that's awesome advice. So we're going to move into a round of rapid fire, okay. uh, which is ex- really exactly what it sounds like, but I'm looking for either one word to one sentence answers. So the first one is what was the last thing you failed at? Well, I have spent this year in a very entrepreneurial venture getting my book out. I don't know if people realize I have a publisher, but it's also a lot's expected of me. And I have failed at so many things this year. It took me five different tries to get a website. And here I thought I was somebody who knew digital. Um, I have failed in things like I've had to get up and do presentations. Kind of, I failed at promoting myself because I'm too close to it. Right. And here I'm somebody who's been good at promotion, but doing it for myself has been really hard. So this year has been a lot of failing and feeling incompetent because I'm doing things that I haven't done before and I feel like I should be better at them. Right. Well, I think you're being a little hard on yourself. You did write an entire <laughs> book and you have it out there in the world. So it's a huge accomplishment. Um, one thing you can't live without besides your family. Uh, one thing I can't live without is my, just my curiosity and the ability to discover. I talk in the book about make room for discovery. It's a core tenant of my life. If I can't get out and discover new things, I can't almost can't breathe. So that's what I can't live without. That's a great answer. A future of work trend idea or movement that you're excited about. Yeah. And this is something I, I kind of understood when I worked at G, but I really understand it this year being on my own. It's just the fluidity of our professional futures. We talked about it a bit when we started the conversation, but this idea that one, you don't need to, you will not be working for the same company, but right. also just, we all want multiple definitions of our job. We're not just one thing. I'm not just vice president of marketing. I'm not just a marketer. Yeah. I want different ways to define myself in life, but also in my career. And I want more fluidity. I want more projects. I want more missions. I want to be on multiple teams. 
don't box me in. And I think that uh, that is definitely a, a wave that we've got to ride for the future. We're used to gender fluidity, but I think we've got to get much more comfortable with professional fluidity going forward. Yeah, I'm excited for that. I think I agree with you. I think it is the future. And I think companies are starting to even like the GEs to the startups, all of them are starting to slowly get on board with that. So that's exciting. I hope I hope so. I'm glad you're seeing that. Yes, I, I, I always tell people I'm like, if you want to be an entrepreneur, but you're not ready to, you know, go on your own, there are a lot of companies that want the entrepreneurial minded person in their company. And so I do I think, you know, the PR teams for these companies are doing a better job at, at getting that message out. Good. Okay. Last question. How do you plan to disrupt your career in 2019? I love that because uh, I, uh, I, that is my challenge in 2019. I am starting over again and uh, I'm going to go forth in the way I know how, but I'm going to do it in a very different way. So I'm, I'm really kind of this beginner again, and I'm really excited to be starting over in many ways and taking the expertise I have, but applying it in new ways. So I'm going to go out in 2019 and just be a ruthless discoverer, this time for me, not looking for trends for my company, not looking for a new business idea for my company, but what am I going to do that for me? And I'm really excited about it. Well, I think taking your advice from when you moved from DC to New York, you're just going to do it. <laughs> you know, I'm so just going to do now it. Now exactly. you've said it, you have to take your own advice, right? Well, I'm not going to overanalyze. It. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, Beth, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an incredible conversation, and I know that everybody is going to start adopting being a change maker and how to put more of that into their lives. So, thank you again. Thanks, Lauren, for the opportunity. And really, it is this notion that change starts with you. It's just small steps. You don't have to take on a a huge effort, just small steps forward, put yourself out, go, go see for yourself, discover some things that are new and next. That's the way you get ready for change and, and, and help make change happen. Wonderful. Thank you, Beth. Thanks, Lauren. Really nice talking to you. Thanks a lot. That was Beth Comstock, former GE executive, author, and a woman disrupting imagination. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Females. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Females and leave us a review. We're so grateful to hear from you, our listeners. And here's what Jess Estrella on iTunes recently said. Like many of us, I listen to a wide range of podcasts and have gotten really picky about them. The female stands out from the crowd as a solidly produced, thoughtful, professional product, unplagued by many of my usual common podcast pet peeves. Lauren McGoodwin nails the hosting gig here with thoughtful questions and really lets her impressive guests shine while pulling answers from them. Thank you, Jess, for the really thoughtful review. I really appreciate it. Ready for more smart career advice? Sign up for our free 28-day career kickstart via the link in the show notes or head over to careercontessa.com. You'll get one email a week that includes everything you need to uplevel your career. It's free and it can change your life. And I'll be back this Friday, March 8th, with a special episode to celebrate International Women's Day. But until then, you can follow us on at Career Contessa on Instagram, share this episode with your work wives and Instagram community with hashtag the females podcast, and listen to this sneak peek of our International Women's Day episode with Liz Dolan. One of the pieces of advice I give to men and women all the time, but particularly women, is if you can get yourself into a growth industry, a growth company, it's almost like people don't have time to worry about what gender you are. At least that was my experience at Nike. There was this unlimited amount of work to do. And if you were like me that had an unlimited 
appetite for working myself too hard, then you could always volunteer for some crazy assignment. They were just grateful to have anyone to go do the job.